The following sermon is a ministry of Hilton Head Presbyterian Church. For more information, visit us online at hiltonheadpca.com. I just get excited now of hearing about what God's doing. I get convicted. We've got, what do we have, 300 and some people here today? 400, 500 running around uh, overall. And I listened to him say, they have already planted one church and they've got 60 people. And they're talking about planting another church. And I think, when in the world are we going to be large enough and confident enough to go, God, we need to go start another work. And I think maybe we need to be considering what God has for us uh, in the future uh, in that way of expanding the gospel. It's encouraging, isn't it, to see what God's doing? Isn't it great to think that because you support the ministries of this church and through that we have a mission budget of a little over $100,000, that there are students in Vermont hearing the gospel of Jesus Christ, and and that there are some of our ancestors, many of us, who are uh, English in our background, hearing the gospel of Jesus Christ, uh, those family lines and trees, that there are students around the country hearing it, that there are people in Japan and China hearing the gospel, all because of some faithful folks on Hilton Head Island who said, we don't want to be a place just to retire. We want to be a place where we can see God's vision going out from this island uh, to impact the world for Jesus Christ. And I do want to encourage you for that. Uh, I was hanging out with some buddies of mine this week, and they're from my home church back in Rock Hill. And they're like, Bill, is it really as good as it seems down here for you and your family? And I was like, you know what? It really is. It's really that good. And so I want you to celebrate the good things. We can spend a lot of time uh, getting on the little things, but celebrate the good things that God is doing in our midst, and he is blessing us. This morning, he's going to bless us with a challenge. I was sharing with Matt that this is one of those sermons where, as a pastor, at one level, you salivate because you sort of get to bring out the big stick, and you get to go, all right, we get to deal uh, with your obedience We get to deal with lifestyle issues, and you bring out the big stick, and everybody usually goes, man, I love that sermon because I felt terrible after it. Uh, Goes, man, you really stepped on my toes today, Bill. That was awesome. And some of you grew up in those churches, and you don't think it's really been a sermon uh, until you feel guilty. Well, uh, part of me is going, this is awesome. This is great. I can just step back and swing for the fences. The other part of me realized this. I've been in ministry for 22 years. I sat in a lot of offices uh, and counseled people. I sat in a lot of coffee shops and bars and in living rooms and listened to the difficulties of life trying to live it out as a Christian. And so I've got this incredibly large storage tank full of illustrations to bring out. And some of those reflect even some of the struggles that you have here. So I want you to hear this from me today. Anything that I'm mentioning isn't coming from some private conversation that we had last week. So I don't want you to go, that gum McCutcheon, he shared my stuff right there in front of everybody. Now it's on the internet, and now I can't come back to that church, and all of this stuff. Here's something that I want you to know. Whatever you are particularly struggling with, if you were to turn and look to your left, that'd be that way, um, or look to your right, which would be that way, you would see somebody else who struggled with similar stuff. So this isn't about you, particularly, but it's about you. A good southern way, it's about y'all, okay? And in real good southern way, it's about all y'all, okay? 
so we've got something to listen to today, and it's exciting because in the book of James, in the book of James, God decided to get incredibly practical. Because what he kept hearing from his people, even in the first century, was how do I know how I'm supposed to live if I love Jesus? He kept hearing, even in the silent meditations of the hearts of individuals and saints, of I need a road map to sort of guide and direct me on how I'm supposed to live this life for Jesus Christ. I've left my Gentile pagan idolatries over here, and I'm following Jesus. I need to know what it looks like to live for him. I left my Jewish religion over here, and I've come to follow the Messiah, and I need to know what it looks like to follow him. And James, who was the brother of Jesus, who was the leader of the Jerusalem church, he was not one of the original apostles, uh, but he was the leader of the church, he writes this incredibly practical letter to church-going, self-professing Christians. Important to hear who he's writing to. This isn't an evangelistic letter to an unreached people group. This is to a group of people who are professing Jesus, many of them coming out of uh, a Jewish lifestyle, a Jewish understanding and worldview. It's in the context of a pagan worldview, a secular worldview, which had nothing really beyond this world, but it was everything about this world. And so he begins to write and to challenge us, and we've, we've titled this Field Notes for the Christian Life, that it is your guide, it is your note-taking place to go, okay, how am I supposed to live? He has some things to say about how we're supposed to speak. He has some things to say of how we're supposed to approach wealth. Some things to say about how we're supposed to deal with social and ethnic diversity within the context of the church. What does it mean to live this way? All of this stuff. He's saying, this is what you should be doing. And so it's a very active book for us. And so we're going to come, and this week, we're going to look at this idea, and I titled it, basically, is is obedience optional? Is obedience optional? Now, parents... How does that work in your home? Think about that. What if you said, okay, here are the the rule, here are the house rules. Here is what it looks like to be a part of this family. Here are the standards uh, by which we are setting the base of our family and how we as a family engage the world. And your kid comes up to you and says, "Eh, I don't think so. Don't think that one applies to me. You're going to go, oh, that's fine. Move on. No big deal. Or let's move it out of the family context into a social government context. How many of you have found out that though arbitrary in their application of the law, speed limits really matter? Any of you met a wonderful servant of the law who's come and pulled up behind you to speak to you? Anybody? The rest of you are going, I haven't told my wife yet. (laughs) I can't confess that publicly. She'll get mad at me. Well, I had the opportunity this week to take care uh, of a small infraction uh, that I had. And what I realized was as I looked at the judge and I said, Your Honor, I I am guilty as charged. I was hoping, though, as the father of three teenagers and becoming more and more broke as college begins and as insurance for teenage drivers, especially boys, uh, continues to kick in, wondering if maybe those points and that little fine could disappear. And he said, Bill... Nine years ago, there was a statute passed by blah, 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 and he read the whole dang statute. And he basically said, no, it can't pay up. Take your two points and move on and slow down, preacher. He didn't say preacher, but in my mind, I was like, okay. There's rules. 
There's rules that you are called to follow in society, in families. So why do we think it's any different within the society or kingdom of heaven and within the family of God? We have these rules that we say are true rules everywhere else in the world, in every other way that we work, in your businesses, in the way that you engage those things. But somehow, when we become a Christian, we think that they're just suggestions. James is saying they are not suggestions. For someone who has come to faith in Jesus Christ through the blessing of the gospel, through the grace and mercy of God, by the work of the Spirit in your life, we now respond by going, okay, how then shall I live? And James goes, I'm so glad you asked that question. And he begins to answer some other questions that you may have. He answers a question like this, do you want to live a life that is of incredible value? That at the end of your days, you're not looking back and going, what a worthless adventure that was. James has something to say. Or what about maybe, do you want to live a life that is blessed by God? That has his kiss of approval on it. That has his seal, as we sang, take my heart and seal it. God, would you cover it and seal it with your mark? Would you take it and cover it in that way? Would you bless it? Or maybe to phrase the question a little differently, how many of you would like a life that others would look at and go, what a righteous life? What a life of incredible righteousness that it reflected Jesus Christ and the God and King whom these people served. If you've answered yes to any of those, then listen to what James has to say. More importantly, Listen to what God has to say to us today through his servant, James. This is the word of the Lord. Know this, my beloved brothers. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing." If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but, he, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the, word, from the world. This is the word of the Lord. May he add his blessing to the reading and hearing of it. Amen. Father, would you ask, we ask now that you would ask, add your blessing to this time. We would hear your word. And that where it convicts, it would not condemn. Where it stings, it would not destroy. But it would come in and it would move in our hearts. And it would lead us to a greater love of the cross for what we've received in forgiveness. And a desire to live a life worthy of the upward calling of Jesus Christ. 
To him be glory in all things. Amen. So, all of those things that we've discussed comes down to one very simple statement. Obedience is not optional. Obedience within the Christian life is not optional. And now some of you who are tipping your toe back into the church, some of you who are coming back around uh, have left the church, and by and large, your response of why you left the church was because in the places where you grew up, in the churches where you grew up, seemingly obedience was optional. That you would see all these folks on Sunday morning lifting their hands and praising God. And you would see them speak in these wonderful terms. And you would see them read their Bibles. And then you would see them out in the context of your town. Or even in your family. Or in your school. And you would go, I don't want to have anything to do with those hypocrites. Where they preach this one thing and they say this other thing. And they sing these praises with their hands uplifted. But then they go out and obedience seems to be optional. In their lives. Part of the greatest. Uh, dis- well. Part of the greatest indictment on the church. In the church in America per se. Is that of we think obedience is optional. We love Jesus. Hey we don't get us wrong. We love Jesus. We've even created theologies. That go something like this. I love Jesus and he's the king in my life. He's just not the king in my heart. And we have this little wonderful diagram that says. He's not on the seat of my heart. He's over here. Well guess what. If Christ isn't the king of your heart. He's not your king. He doesn't get to come in and go, I'm an add-on. Come to me only when you get in trouble. Come to me on your deathbed, all that. He's like, if you love me, you will follow me. You will look an awful lot like me. Now, does that mean you're perfect? Thank goodness, no. Because we're not perfect, are we? What he's saying is you have a deep and profound desire within you to live out the gospel of Jesus Christ in the most consistent way you possibly can naturally, but in the most supernatural way you can because you realize the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, has taken up residence within you and says, I, by my power, can live my life through you. Now let me do that. So let's look at a couple of things this morning as we look at this. First thing is this, in our limited time together today, First, to ask God to bless your life while you intentionally disobey is the height of craziness. It's the height of absurdity. And what it leads to in this passage, it leads to self-deception. James says the person who hears the word... The person who comes every week is consistent in their attendance of church. The person who reads their Bible during the course of the week and is in their Bible studies. The person who goes to the small groups. The person who hears the word regularly but does not do it is self-deceived. I thought that was... Have you ever been deceived? I remember one one time in particular, we were down in New Orleans. And I was standing there with Lisa on... uh, uh, Bourbon Street, and this fellow came up to me and he said, hey, I bet you $5 I can tell you where you got them shoes. And I was like, I'll take that bet. There's no way you know where I bought these shoes. And he said, here, you sure? And I was like, five bucks right now. He said, man, you got them shoes on your feet on Bourbon Street. <laughs> Dang, nab it. Five bucks. I was deceived. He tricked me. And that was somebody else deceiving me. What James is saying is you are self-deceptive, which is even more sinister. 
You are deceiving yourself if you think that partial obedience is honoring to the Lord. That 70% effort is glorifying God in some way, shape, or form. It is a self-deception. It, it is the prayer of the college student, me in particular, saying on Thursdays, God, forgive me for everything I'm going to do this weekend. That is the height of self-deception. Of saying, I know enough about Jesus to know that what I'm about to go do is wrong in his eyes. And it's wrong and it, is, it comes under the condemnation of, of his holy hand. But I am unwilling to do anything more about it than simply confess it and ask for forgiveness. And then not feel too guilty on Monday. Or as one good southern pastor, I've said it to you before, said this. Boys, he would say to his son and his son's friends. Boys, you can't go out on Saturday night and sow your wild oats and then come on Sunday morning and pray for crop failure. Work it. Let it work. Seep in. But isn't that what we do? Hey, God, I'm going to church, so I'm going to go out and blow it out tonight. Hey, God, I'm going to ask for forgiveness later, but I'm going to do this. It is the height of self-deception. Think of it this way. How would your spouse feel if you cheated just a little? It was only one man. It was only one other woman, honey. What's the big deal? That wouldn't fly very well, would it? Or to your professor, it's just, I mean, it was only half of the formulas. I didn't, it's not like I wrote down every formula on my cheat sheet. It was only, I had to do half the work. I'm afraid an honor council may not smile very much on that. Or so many young people today who, when polled, who are professing believers of Jesus Christ, and they are asked the question, are you sexually pure? They would say, well, yes, we are. And what they mean is we just simply haven't had intercourse. That we've done absolutely everything up to that line. And God's going to be honored with that because somehow we've drawn an arbitrary line in the sand and said, God, you're honored with everything previous to that. Or I didn't get really drunk. I only had a couple uh, of drinks. Uh, what's the big deal with that? Well, the big deal is you're 20. Or you're 16. Well, I mean, my parents said it's okay. They actually bought it for me. Well, it's just we would rather have our children drinking in our home and keep them under our eye than to have them out there doing it. God's going to be honored with that. We're good parents that way. James would look at us and go, who are you people? Do you think God's honored with this sort of halfway stuff that's going on? I doubt it. Actually, I know it because it says right there, he says... Be doers of the word and not hearers only. Because people who are hearers only are deceiving themselves. Or here's one that works well for most people. As long as I'm not hurting anybody else, it's really not that big a deal, is it, Bill? I mean, come on. That somehow then we've determined uh, that the valuation of disobedience is whether or not it hurts somebody else. And what we've received, if you're a public school teacher, you're going to have a very hard time making a, a, an indictment of someone cheating because they can basically say, I can cheat and it really doesn't have to have an effect on anybody else. Why is that wrong? 
Why is it wrong for me to cheat and better myself? Why is it wrong for me to go and to do this so that I can get a better score on those tests so I can get into a better university and provide more for my family down the road? It is an incredibly difficult argument to press back against, isn't it? Unless there's some standard that says, thou shalt not lie. Everything else just becomes arbitrary. It doesn't say, thou shalt not tell part truths. Or full big truths, just the part. How many of you guys white lie? My ticket was a white lie, by the way. My ticket was a white lie because the officer was generous to me. I was coming on the island, and it's right there where you come onto the bridge, and it used and it's you see the sign that says fifty-five. It's right there, and there were all these barrels. And there's this big construction project going on, and it was this other sign over here that said forty-five. But I saw that one, so I was speeding up to 45. And he goes, Mr. I was speeding up to 55, excuse me. And he looked at me, he goes, Mr. McCutcheon, do you know how fast you were going? <clears throat> I'm not sure. <laughs> I knew how fast I was going. I just didn't want to tell him, so I told a little white lie. What's the big deal? It's a little white lie. It's helping me, because then I won't get a big enough fine, then I'll have more money, I can send my poor children to college. Come on, your, your honor, please. It's a little white lie, it's not hurting anybody. James says, you don't get the gospel, Bill. Because, Bill, if you got the gospel, you wouldn't hedge the truth. You wouldn't think that just a little is enough, or a little isn't that bad. It's a challenge. For he says that to ask God to bless our life while we continue to willfully disobey leads to a deep self-deception. He says it leads to this absurdity. Good gracious, we're not going to get to the good stuff if I don't hurry. Um, Maybe I'll just leave you here. (laughs) Um, Feel bad this week and come back next Sunday. Um, But he says it leads to this absurdity. When you talk to a person like that, he's going, it's absurd. He says, it's like if, for, if anyone is just a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently at his face in the mirror, and then he looks at, for he looks at himself and goes away and once forgets what he was like. It'd be like the person who had the beard, who looked in the mirror, and they walked away, and someone said, I like your beard. What beard? The beard that's on your face. I don't have a beard on my face. You would look at the person and go, you're an idiot. You, have, you just looked in a mirror. Or as my wife has looked at me before when I've done this, honey, have you seen my glasses anywhere? I can't find my glasses. Or this one, honey, where in the world are my glasses? She looks at me like, are you joking? They're on your head. Or I have literally walked around searching for these as I've hold them and held them in my hand. And I look at myself sometimes and go, you're an idiot. You're absurd. That's what James was trying to say. A person who hears the word and doesn't try to live it out is absurd. They're like this foolish person who looks in the mirror and doesn't know if they're a blonde or a brunette. It's the person who can't remember if they're white or black. It's the person who looks intently and doesn't recognize this big smudge on their face. He's saying, be careful. Self-deception is massive. Self-deception is massive and it leads to destruction in our lives. So be careful. To ask God to bless your life while still in willful disobedience leads to a self-deception and an absurdity. But then what that leads to is this. though: If we then, if we then profess Christ, what does it look like? For the true believer, 
Obedience is the mark of a genuine Christian. Obedience is the mark of a genuine Christian. Verse 22, but be doers of the word and not hearers only. Verse 21, therefore put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. But what he's saying here is all of this is tied back to something. The mark of genuine Christianity is obedience. And that obedience is tied back to something that's not in this section. I'm going to read verse 18 to you. We read it last week. It says, of his own will, that is God's will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Remember who he's speaking to. If you are a believer, God has done an incredible work within you. And he has transformed you and made you different. At the very essence of who you are, at your spiritual DNA, you're different than the world anymore. He said God has done that. It is a transaction. It is an adoption. It is a a movement of his spirit in you that you're no longer the same. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And because I am now different, I can and will live differently by the power of God in me. I can now obey. Do I always want to obey? Absolutely not. But God says, I will give you the ability to overcome that sin. And so the first thing you need to know about obedience is it's natural to the believer. It's natural to the believer that you naturally want to obey. It's a desire that you have within you. And then as that desire begins to take root, uh, what the first thing is, it begins with a negative. You've got to take off something. Look at the language that he uses there in verse 21. Therefore, because this has happened in verse 18, because the word of God has been implanted in your life and you are a new creation of first fruits of his work, that Jesus died for you and so you are now transformed because of his work. You are no longer slaves to sin. You are no longer uh, under its power and dominion. You can now live for him. Therefore... Remember what we would say, what's the therefore, therefore? You look and go, what's it there? Therefore, because of that, put away, or it's disrobe. It's, It's a language of clothing. Disrobe yourself of all filthiness and rampant wickedness. He's saying part of the Christian life is a taking off of old stuff. It's a taking off of old stuff. How many of you used to be single? When you got married, did you have to take off some old habits in your marriage? And if you didn't, then we probably need to talk because your spouse, you're driving them crazy. But we had to unlearn some habits. Men, you had to learn about the hinge on the back of the toilet seat. Once you got married, it is to be lifted up and then put back down, right? You're going, I can't believe you mentioned that in a sermon. It's practical. You had to learn it. If you didn't, your wife has been mad at you ever since. The gospel's the same way. Unlearn bad behavior, Christian. Unlearn bad behavior. But look at what, how he says. And it is a rampant wickedness. The word he uses there is like, it is a sticky wickedness. It sticks to you. It is everywhere. And you have to constantly and continually relearn how to live for Christ. I had a great time Friday night with some buddies of mine. They came down from Rock Hill, and I don't get to see them very often. And we played golf over at Melrose out, uh, and it was so much fun. And then we went to Marside's Mary's and uh, Marside Mamas or whatever the name of it is. And there's an interesting crowd of people. 
who are Marshside moms, on a Friday night on Defusky Island. And I'm looking around, and I'm seeing all this stuff going on, and I'm smelling smells that I hadn't smelled for a very long time. Uh, and I was like, wow, that's bold, right here in the middle of the restaurant. And I'm seeing folks, and there's a young woman soliciting uh, herself uh, with men, and there's all this going on. And I'm looking around, and I'm saying, okay, God. These are all old behaviors and norms. I want them off so that I can live for Christ right here, right now. I need your strength to do that. And it was awesome because I had a great buddy of mine who had the same desire. And we sat right down there in the middle of that place and we were able to enjoy the peace and the presence of Christ. And people would come up to us and they'd look, and one guy looked at us and said, you boys look all angry. And I was like, angry? We're just not drunk. I mean, we're just not high. So if you translate that into anger, well, and my buddy goes, dude, you miss it. If I was any happier than I am right now, I would die. And he goes, oh, okay. And he walked on. And it was like going, hey, this is awesome. But we had to relearn. We had to take off old stuff. I've, showed, I've told you my story. When I was brand new as a believer with my buddies, and we would go out to Five Points in Columbia, and then all of a sudden, when I, they're like, hey, McCutcheon, let's go to Five Points. I was like, I'm not going to Five Points tonight. I became a Christian, and, and I realized I'm not supposed to get drunk anymore. They're like, oh, okay, cool. Can you drive? I'm like, all right, I'll drive. <laughs> uh, or when all my buddies are sitting around, and there's drug use going on, and they look at me, McCutcheon, hey, I know this is going to sound odd, but I came to Christ and I'm a believer now and I've realized something, I can't smoke drugs. And they're like, okay, more for us. And as I went to a person I was dating and I said, our relationship doesn't honoring to God who I am now a child of. And so I don't think that we need to be together anymore. And she was like, okay, get the heck out. Because sometimes you have to take off a lot of stuff. And for some of you, you're in the midst of that process. And I want to encourage you to keep fighting the battle. To keep taking off that stuff because it so easily entangles us. It's sticky. It sticks to us and it comes around. And so you who are in the church, celebrate those who are trying hard. Would you? Instead of highlighting their failures, celebrate the fact that they're trying. And come alongside them and help hold them up along the way. And he says, gosh, obedience begins with subtraction by removing something. And then obedience continues with addition, verse 21, receive the word of the Lord. He's saying you've got to get rid of some other stuff and you've got to fill that place with something else. And what you're filling it with is the word of God. Why should you read the Bible every single day? Just to check it off? It's your lifeline. It is you looking and going, I so desperately want to go back and put that old clothing on, God. Remind me this, oh, died with Christ. It's no longer me who lives, but Christ who lives in me. That's awesome. The one who lives in me is greater than the one who is in the world. I needed to hear that today, that I'm transplanting God's word into my life. It is taking root. It's an agricultural term that he's saying, let it take root deep within the rich soil of your heart. At the very depth of who you are, let it take root and then bear fruit in your lives. Lisa and I didn't do a great job in our homes of family devotions. We had the word of God in our home, uh, but we're great about that. You know, if you are doing that, praise God for you. Parents, keep working hard to implant the word of God in your children's life. Young people, study God's word. 
Older folks, keep studying God's word. Implant it in your life. Obedience begins by subtraction, but it continues with addition. And it has a lasting impact in our lives. And finally this. We'll circle back around. He says in verse 26, If anyone thinks he's religious and does not bridle his tongue, which is just one example, he deceives his heart, and this person's religion is worthless. If you don't want at the end of your day your life to just be worthless and start doing something about it today. Don't look back on your past and go, too much water is under the bridge. God would never love me. He'd never accept me. The beauty of the gospel is this. All that's forgiven in Christ. You are new. You are washed. You are cleansed. And you are empowered by the Spirit of God to be His ambassador in the world. To be his ambassador into the very group of people that you don't think you can stand up against. That you can stand for Jesus. And they may look at you and think you have ten heads. But here's something that you can know. The king of the universe looks on you with incredible passion and love. And he says, you're my child. Way to go. Keep going strong. And then there's this other picture which I love. It's that there is a cloud of witnesses. Who are cheering you on to finish the race well. So as a church, let's do this. Let's finish the race well together. That means sometimes you've got to call a friend out and say, hey, help me understand your profession of Jesus Christ over here and this part of your life over here. Help me understand how those work together. And let me lead you along the path of righteousness. And for others, when someone's fallen down and they don't even see it, don't walk by them and kick them. Stop and help them up along the road. Because Christ stopped and helped you up along the road. We're going to sing a song here. Matt and the team are going to come up. I know time's passed us a little bit. Not that sunny anyway. You're not missing much. Um, you do have Mother's Day reservations. I get that. Um, but I want this song to be sort of a meditation for you. To finish this service in contemplation about the beauty and the work of Jesus Christ in your life.